Before we begin tonight, I have a couple announcements for the youth group and parents. Um, the reward trip is coming up this Friday for all that are eligible. If you don't know if you're eligible or not, check the bulletin board, which is in the hall right out the left-hand door and straight ahead, and um, your name should be on the bulletin board if you have two or more. If you have three or more, you're eligible to go on the reward trip. We're going to Kentucky Kingdom. We're leaving at 6 in the morning on Friday and getting back at 11 at night that night. Um, so if you have three or more, you're eligible to go. Just let me know by Wednesday if you're going to go so we can get you your tickets. Monday Night Madness is tomorrow night. We're going to be going rock climbing to climb Nashville over on West End in, in Nashville. And um, it's gonna, we're going to meet the building at 6.15 and we're going to be back at 9.30. Um, anyone who's going needs to bring a waiver signed by your parents saying that you can climb and it's okay with them and they will not sue if you get injured. So this is a must-have to go and you cannot climb without it. Um, another thing we're doing this week is Destination Unknown. It'll be at 9 o'clock on Tuesday and we'll be getting back at 2 o'clock that afternoon. Um, it was announced earlier today and tonight that there will be devotionals tonight for the junior high and next week for the senior high. That was my fault and Phil's fault. We combined the devotionals last week and split them girls and guys. So we had a 6th through 12th grade devotional last week. So there will be no more devotionals for this, uh, this month. But we appreciate the announcement. Um, anyway, to begin tonight, I, um, a lot of people have been coming and introducing themselves to me over the past, I guess, mostly today. <laughs> And um, I've been here about a month, so I figure I need to introduce myself. I'm Andy Frizzell. I am the summer intern. Um, it was in the bulletin, I guess, a little while ago to look out for the red-headed guy with, you know, in, in the saran-wrapped car. Um, I've been walking around trying to be a little bit under the radar, not to be noticed too much, but I have my car has been saran-wrapped. It has had post-it notes on it and has been written on uh, a time or two. So if you ever see a car driving down the road and it has a lot of writing on it or any other foreign objects, it's probably your intern. Um, I am very excited to be here at Mount Juliet. Um, the, um, I just want to thank the elders for having me here and allowing me to work here this summer and be the intern and thanking me and thank them also for allowing me to speak tonight. We didn't have many options since I am the only employee of Mount Juliet here tonight, except for Miss Carol. So um, it pretty much came down to me. So uh, I appreciate them asking me to do that anyway. Um, I also want to thank the youth group for accepting me and being so nice and kind and decorating my card any chance they get. Um, We've talked about some of the upcoming events. We're real excited about that, and we thank you for your support and always uh, helping us out in those events and uh, being good to Phil and I. I'm real excited to work with Phil. I'm the fourth intern here. I'm the second redhead, and I'm the first to be hired by this congregation that was not in a certain social club at Freed Hardeman. So when I got the job and the invitation to come, I was very excited and very surprised because I never thought I'd get a chance to work out here. But Phil called me up and he said, come on and meet with the elders. And uh, it might be a surprise to some of the elders and I might not be here tomorrow as an intern because I did not join that certain social club, but I am the intern for tonight. And I appreciate them having me here and uh, for Phil inviting me. Phil and I grew up together. He was kind of my hero when I was younger and 
I really appreciate the chance of getting to work with him again. Tonight, we're going to study something that I spent most of the semester studying at Freed Hardman. Uh, me and a group of my friends in the dorm studied kind of about, we, we, we'd always known our Father God, but we, we just didn't know every aspect of God, what all He represented, what all He embodied. So we set out this semester to study God, to study what all He encompassed and what all He did for us. You know, God is our Father. God is our caretaker. He's our master. We serve Him. But He's also a friend. He's also the person we can rely on, the person we pray to. And tonight I want to talk about God as, as a certain, I guess, a certain characteristic of God. God has many characteristics. But the characteristic we're going to talk about tonight is God as a judge. God is the ultimate judge. He will be the person that will judge us on the day of judgment. So tonight we're going to start out by looking at Romans 2. Romans 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Romans 2, 1 through 8. Actually, we're going to go down through verse 11. I changed my mind. Romans 2, 1 through 11. It reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. For those who are self-singing and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In these verses, I think we find three characteristics of God as a judge. God is, first of all, a vindictive and vengeful judge. Secondly, He's a merciful judge. And God, altogether, in all of His judgments, is righteous. He's just in everything that he do everything that he does in all of his judgments. First we want to talk about God as a vindictive God, as a judge as a judge who is vengeful, who takes action and is going to condemn us for our sins. It was a it was a warm and sunny day in late July. I was a uh, I was a little bit shorter um a little bit wider, a little bit rounder, and my hair was a little bit redder, or more red, or however you want to say it. It was, uh, I was about five years old. It was 1989, and we lived in a house in northeast Nashville in the small community of Inglewood. And I grew up in Inglewood, right ne- in a house right next to Jackson Park Church of Christ. And uh, one day, Dad was at the office. And I loved baseball. I played baseball from the time I was three or four until probably 13 when I broke my arm and decided it wasn't worth it. 
But when I was five years old, I still loved it. I loved baseball, and one, that's all I wanted to do was play baseball. So in the afternoons when Dad would be at the work, I'd either go outside and play with my dog, I'd play on the swing set, or I'd play baseball. I would go out and get a glove and a ball, and I'd just toss the ball up for hours and catch it. Well, one day, I decided to take batting practice. Um, I'd become a pretty formidable hitter in the five-year-old league. I'd driven in a couple runs in my time and thought, you know, this would be a good chance to get in some, get in some batting practice. Dad's not around. Mom, mom's working on some stuff. You know, I can just throw the ball up to myself and hit it. Well, I decided it'd probably be best to hit it away from the house. Dad had always told me, you know, when you, when you, if you're going to hit the ball in the yard, make sure you hit it outside. Make sure you hit it to the backyard and over the fence and don't, don't hit it towards the house. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty smart of Dad to say that to me. So I thought, well, I'll do that. Well, I started to, and I hit the ball over the fence two or three times and had to walk to the gate and then walk outside and around the fence to get the ball. And after about the third time of doing that, I got pretty tired of walking around that far. So I thought to myself, you know, I was pretty clever for a five-year-old. I thought, if I hit the ball against the house, it will bounce back to me and I won't have to walk anywhere. And just pick the ball up and swing again. Well, I did that a couple times. I threw the ball up, I got ready, and I swung and hit it against the and hit it against the house. Well, it would come back to me and I'd pick it up and I'd do it again. You know, I'd miss it a couple times, but then finally I'd get a solid hit. Well, there was one time where I threw it up and I knew it was just perfect. I knew I was gonna kill the ball. But I threw it up and I looked at it and I reared back and I let go. And I killed the ball. I just, I mean, for a five-year-old, that was, I mean, it was a grand slam ball, no doubt. And, but then I, I really didn't look to see where the ball went. I just kind of waited for it to bounce and roll back to my feet. But all I heard was, and for most kids, we know what that sound means. That means that we've broken a window in our house with a baseball. Um, most guys go through this at some young age, and um, I was definitely one of those. I, um, I did not turn to look at the window. I didn't even try, I didn't even yell, I didn't even make any sound. I dropped the bat, I proceeded to walk inside, and then flung open the door and dived under my bed and hid there for four hours. And um, didn't come out again until I heard my father's footsteps in the hall near my room. This is how a lot of people view God. They view God as the vengeful father coming to collect the punishment or to give punishment to his son, the son who's committed some error, who's committed some sin. And that's the first point I want to make tonight, looking at God as a vindictive God, God as a vengeful God, a God who is a judge who's coming to collect, who's coming home to see what you've done, to see the sins you've committed and to pay you back for that. Um, if you turn to Romans, say in Romans 2, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. Reread verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. See, we see here that God is going to come back and He's not going to be just so merciful. He's not going to be just so loving. He's going to be a God, if, if you've sinned, and if you've not followed his path, and if you've not done what you're supposed to do, it's going to come back to bite you. 
says that you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have pain. It's going to be suffering for you if you're not in God's chosen. If you're, of the, if, you're of, if you're not of the elect and of these people who have turned their back on God and not followed Him, you'll have tribulation and pain for eternity. We see a lot of description of God as a vengeful God in the Old Testament. We see, some, we see it in the whole Bible, but a lot more in the Old Testament. Gen, turn to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, we see the story of the flood. God has created the, God created the world only five chapters before, in chapter 1. And then he decides in chapter 6 that the world is too corrupt. He cannot leave it. He cannot keep it to where it is. He's had enough. He's had enough of all the violence, of all the problems he's had with these people, these beings he's created. And he's decided, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to start over. God is not a God who... Is going, God is a God who is going to repay the sins of those who are not following Him. Also turn to Genesis 19. Genesis 19, another story of God acting with vengeance. God taking control of the situation and paying those back for the sins they've committed. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham and Lot have split up, and Lot has gone to Gomorrah. God comes to Abraham and tells, tells him, Abraham... I'm going to strike down Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham realized, you know, Lot lives there. So he begs and pleads with God. He says, if you can find enough people, will you not? Well, God searches and he can not find enough people who believe and, you know, follow his ways. So it must be done. Sodom and Gomorrah is struck and burned with fire and brimstone, never to be seen again, and never for a town to be put there again. God is a very vengeful God, a very scary God. And if we test his patience, the same thing could happen to us for an eternity, a fire and brimstone. Also, in the New Testament, in Acts 5, verses 1 and 10, 1 through 10. Acts 5, verse 1 through 10. Let's read that together. It reads, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not as, at your dispose, disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, and carried, out, carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That's exactly how it should be. A great fear was placed in these people because of what they saw God do to Ananias and Sapphira. What happened to those who did not follow God's will? Those who sought to do Satan's will, to, follow, to fall into the temptation and to follow the way of the devil. This is what happens 
God is a vengeful God. The world will tell you today that there are no gates in heaven. Everyone gets in. If you believe in God, you've punched your ticket. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to live a good life. You don't have to go to church. If you believe in God, heaven is yours. All you have to do is die and take your reward. But we all know this is not the truth. We know that heaven is just not given to us. We have to accept the gift that God has given us through His Son and act on it. God is a vengeful God. He is not a God who will just take us in no matter what all the sins we've done, if we do not accept His words, if we do not follow Him, if we are not baptized and become a believer and become a member of His church, we must do these things or we will face a, vi a vengeful judge on the day of judgment. Knowing that God deals harshly with us when we sin, we must also know that His judgment is righteous. His judgment is true. Look back in Romans 2. And we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 again. We're going to reread verses 5 and 6 in Romans 2. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. God is a righteous judge. Whatever we do on earth, however we act, whatever we do with the, with the gifts he's given us, is how we will be judged. This is kind of a scary thing, but really for Christians, it's really nice. How many times have you been judged by some of your peers? How many times have you been labeled? How many times have you labeled someone else? How many times have you judged someone else? I know the other night in the mall, I did it. Just two nights ago, I was walking through the mall, and as pe I'm, I love to watch people. And as people pass, you try to put them in different categories. You judge them. You put a label on them. You know, their hair is too long. They must, you know, they must do drugs. Or th their clothes are black. They, they must not be Christians. Or this or that. And we label people and we judge people. We don't look at their insides. We just look at their outsides. First, first Samuel 16 and verse 7. When God is looking for David, Samuel's looking at all these sons of Jesse before David. And he sees they're tall, they're strong, they're beautiful, they're great men. And he knows these will be great leaders as a king of Israel. But God says, no, these are not the ones I've selected. There's another. God chose the runt of the family. God chose the shepherd, the boy who wasn't even in the house, the afterthought of his father. The, oh yeah, I've got another son. He's in the field, let me go get him. In verse 7 it says... God does not look at the outward appearance as man does. But God looks at the heart. God is a righteous judge. He's not going to judge us on our height, our weight, our physical appearance, our athletic abilities. He's going to judge us on our soul, on what we've done, and how our relationship has been with Him. Revelation 19 and verse 2, the first, the first little part of it, the first sentence says that His judgments... Are true. His judgments are righteous. That's a blessing to me because what if I got to heaven and God looked at me and said, you know, I've always wondered why I made people with red hair. You know, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. I really don't like red hair and I really would prefer not to look at it for eternity. 
A lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people in this world would look at me and say, ah, redhead, I don't, he's got a fiery temper. I don't really like that. Or God might say, you know, you didn't play high school basketball. I don't think you'll fit in up here. Or you didn't have that many dates. Or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. The things that we would judge people on or we would rate people on, God doesn't do that. We're lucky in that factor. God only looks at how we live our Christian lives and how we follow Him. Also look at Acts 17, 30 and 31. Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We know that one, the day of judgment is coming. We know on that day of judgment we can be glad because God is an unbiased judge. He will judge us righteously. He will not be biased to who we are, what our name is. He'll only look at our soul. He'll only look at the gifts we've had and how we've used them. And if we have accepted His gift and lived, his li lived the life He has given to us in a manner that He would want us to. The last point for us to look at tonight is how God is a merciful judge. This is my favorite point. Turn to verse 4 of Romans 2. Verse 4 of Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has shown us kindness. God has been patient with us. He's giving us time. He's letting us come back to Him and repent so we might be in a right relationship with Him so that we might receive a crown of life, that we might, go to that we might be in heaven with Him one day. Imagine with me that you're in the courtroom of heaven. You start to walk down the aisle on your way to your trial. You look to your right and you look to your left. And you see people you recognize. You see Joe from work or you see Ann that you dated in high school or college or you see your father or your mother or you see your brother or your sister or any, any number of relatives as you walk down. As you walk through the courtroom, you're real nervous because you can see the worried look on other people's faces. You can see that they're as worried as you are. As you start to get closer to the defense table where you will be sitting, you look over, kind of, you look over interested to see who the prosecuting attorney is. When you look and see his face, at first you don't recognize him, but then you feel something deep inside. You're disgusted by his face. You feel a feeling in yourself of emptiness, a feeling that you felt before. You know this face. You know who he is. This is the voice in your head that's been telling you all your life, it's okay. Everybody else is doing it. Why not? You can go to church on Sunday. By the way, why even go to church on Sunday? It's too early anyway. You don't have to wake up. Sunday night service? they do that in the Bible? I don't think so. Why do you have to go? What about Wednesday night service? Oh man, just sleep in. You had a long day at the office. This is the voice that you've heard in your head all your life telling you what you know is not right. 
you know that this is Satan. And you know that he is going to be given evidence against you to keep you with him for all eternity. You look away from him real quick, but you have to glance back. And as you glance back, you see he has a big smile on his face. He's looking at you with that smile. And he looks at you, and he winks, and he says, he mouths words to you, you're mine. And you see that, and you're, you're scared to death. You walk back, and you start to go to where your seat is at the defense table, and you sit down, and you're gripping the chair, and your knuckles turn white. You're so scared. Because you know how many sins you've committed in your life. You know the struggles and the trials you've been through. You're worried. You're worried about your eternal soul and the destiny of your soul. And then you feel this arm around you. You feel a loving touch on your shoulder. And you look up, and the face you see is another face that you recognize, but you don't know how. And then he smiles at you. And you know exactly who he is. Because love beams from that smile. Love radiates from his entire being. And you know this is your Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is sitting at your defense table. He pats you on the shoulder and he says, Andy, don't worry about it. Remember, I paid the price for you. You ease back into your chair. You release the grip. You feel a little bit more confident. And you start to think, this, you know, this might go my way. And you remember Romans 8.31. If God is for me, who can be against me? And you think, you know, I'm going to be all right today. This is going to be all right. But then the trial starts. Satan approaches the stand. And in his hand, you see a tape. And you wonder, what, what is this tape that he has? And you see as he walks over to stick it into the VCR, you catch the title, the tag on the front of the tape. And it says, The Life and Times of Your Name Here. The Life and Times of Andy Frizzell. The Life and Times of whoever. Whoever is at that table, the defense table, waiting to be judged. And you get real nervous then. You're even you're more scared than you were when you first saw Satan because you know that tape contains every sin you've ever committed. And out of the corner of your eye, you see Jesus start to get up. Now you're real nervous because first Satan has stuck this video in the VCR and he is about to play it so the whole world and your Lord and, and, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and your God see what you've been doing all of your life. And you're worried. And then you see Jesus get up, and you get real nervous. You think, where is he going? You know, he's, on, he's supposed to be on my side. He's my defense. And he's leaving me? But you see, he walks up to the judge's bench. And he leans over, and he speaks to the judge. And um, you see the judge calls Satan over to his bench as well. And they get in a heated discussion. And you can see Satan is furious. He's infuriated by what Jesus is saying. He can't believe it. He slams the tape down on the, on the judge's desk and he walks off. Jesus looks at you and he smiles. He said, remember, I paid the price for you. As Jesus sits down, the judge reads the verdict. He says, this one is a Christian. His sins have been washed away. He has been, he's been bought with a price. This evidence will not be used today and puts the tape down behind his bench, never to be seen. 
That's how it is if we're a Christian. Our sins are blotted out. Our sins are washed away. If we've followed God, if we've lived the life we should, that's what we can expect on Judgment Day. We can expect Jesus on our side, Jesus in our defense, and our sins and all, all the memory of them to be wiped clean. For it says in Hebrews 8 and verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Also, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the promise we've been given. This is the promise of a merciful judge, a merciful God, a God who's allowed His Son to come to this earth to die for us, but we can one day have heaven. And all we have to do is follow Him. God is a judge who can be vindictive. He can be merciful. But overall, He's righteous. He's a just God. Tonight, I ask you, if you were in the throne room of God, which judge would you face? Are you living your life in a way in which you would face a God, a judge who would be merciful, who would take your tape and not allow it to be played because there's no use. You're a Christian. Your sins have been washed away. You've been bought with a price. You've been paid for. Are you, are you going to be one who faces a judge who is vengeful, who is vindictive, who knows your sins, who allows the tape to be played, and you realize that your sins have caught up to you. You realize that this is the God of the flood. This is the God who sent the flood. This is the God who struck Ananias and Sapphira down. This is the judge who killed them because of the sins they committed. If you've not been baptized, if you've not taken the gift that God has given you and are living your life for Him, I ask you tonight to come and do that. Let us baptize you tonight. So if tonight you face the judge, that He would be merciful to you. And if you have been baptized, and if you've been living a life as a Christian, but you've fallen, you've fallen away, and you know that you are not in God's mercy, you are not part of His kingdom and His children anymore, and you feel like you need the prayers of the church tonight, I beg you to come as we stand and as we sing.